that's the kind of moment we're in. And it's a really good moment to be, you know, an innovative startup offering a solution that speaks to the future and not kind of backwards looking. Hello, and welcome back to Product Market Fit, a podcast for early stage founders all about startups, technology, and growth. I'm your host, Moshe Polterak, and my guest today is Jake Heller, founder and CEO of CaseText, the AI startup revolutionizing the legal industry. I was scheduled to interview Jake this past summer, but three days prior to our recording date, news broke that CaseText was being acquired by Thomson Reuters for $650 million. The acquisition forced us to reschedule, but I'm so glad I was finally able to sit down with him for this episode. Jake shared a lot of inside baseball around the acquisition process. We discussed the company's growth journey from early stages through several pivots and had a fascinating discussion about the future of the legal industry and professional services in general in the age of AI. This was worth the wait, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Speaking of waiting, I'd like to apologize about not releasing any episodes of late. As I shared with you recently, I'm working on a new startup that has been consuming all of my time. I love doing this podcast and sharing these conversations with y'all, so we'll continue to do it as often as I'm able, and greatly appreciate your patience and continued support. Finally, a big shout out to Leo Polovitz of Sousa Ventures for introducing me to Jake. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Jake Heller, founder and CEO of CaseText. Hello, Jake. Welcome to the Product Market Fit podcast. I am so happy to finally get to talk to you. Welcome. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Let's start with just a quick introduction. Tell us about CaseText. What do you guys do? Who do you serve? And a little bit about your background as well. Sure. So a bit about me, kind of an odd duck. I grew up in Silicon Valley and I've been coding um, since I was a kid. And I thought for my entire youth, I ended up being an engineer uh, or running a company or something like that. And I ended up falling in love with law and policy. I went to law school. I had a really typical legal career, worked at a big firm, worked for a judge, et cetera. But all the while, I couldn't help you know, think about the fact that, that as I practiced law, the technology that was there for us as lawyers was really bad. It was a huge contrast because when I was using like consumer technology, like the iPhone had just come out at the time and Google's obviously awesome. It'd be trivial to find trivial stuff. Like if I wanted like Thai vegetarian food open near me, I can find that in an instant. But if I wanted to find a key case or piece of evidence in a lot of documents that might, for example, exonerate a client or resolve a billion dollar lawsuit, well, that's like, you're gonna be up all night until like 5 a.m. And so the technology disparity between what I was using my regular personal life and my legal life was like really, really stark. So I started thinking about um, starting a company and that, that led to Case Text. Case Text today is, you know, just been acquired by Thomson Reuters, something I'm sure we'll talk about, but was the leader of artificial intelligence as it applied to law. We were especially, you know, very early, early access to GPT-4 and were really early users of that model and believe very strongly that it's going to make a, a huge impact on the practice of law. But even before GPT-4, we were applying our own large language models to make things like searching for information in, in legal contexts much better. So it was uh, a big focus of ours. But as I'm sure we'll get into in a bit, that's not how the company started. Um, we started 10 years ago, maybe 11 years at this point. And we weren't always the leader in AI for law. In fact, at the very beginning, we weren't focused on AI at all. That's right. Listeners may not know this about me, but I actually went the other way. I almost became a lawyer. I come from a, a whole family of lawyers. My grandfather was a judge. My father works in law. Two brothers and a brother-in-law lawyers. And I almost I almost took that path, but I'm glad I didn't, actually. <laughs> I, uh, I'm, very, I'm very happy in my role. Yeah, you, you dodged a bullet, man. <laughs> 
No, I'm kidding. I, I actually think the practice of law is really fun and intellectually engaging, but startups are just so much more fun. Yes, yes. Startups are more fun. You mentioned the acquisition. We were uh, slated to talk in the summer, and three days before our recording session, I saw an alert that uh, you guys were acquired for $650 million, I believe, by Thomson Reuters. Congratulations. Huge, positive outcome that every startup founder looks forward to. And tell me, what did that feel like right when uh, that was announced or, you know, the money hits the, the wire hits the bank. Like what, what does that feel like as a founder? I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. The truth is that when we started case text and for the you know, 10 years we were operating it, we weren't trying to get a really big financial outcome. That wasn't like the thing that was like primary in our mind. We weren't angling for an acquisition. So when we got the offer, to be honest, I was in the middle of a fundraising process. It caught me totally by surprise. And it, it took me a second to be honest, to kind of like adjust, to be like, oh, well, should I really be considering this? Should we be doing this? And, you know, by the time that that the transaction actually closed, we were really, really excited. It's a really good acquirer. Like, this is a really good company to work with. We can get into more of that potentially a little bit later. It's really good people running the business. And it's a really, you know, we, we felt it was really good strategically. Like, they have a lot of things that we don't have. We think we bring some to the table that they didn't have fully yet. And obviously the price is right. I mean, it's a really great outcome for, for shareholders and employees. You know, we're excited that over a quarter of, of the Keystex employees became millionaires overnight, just that one transaction. Um, so it was just, just absolutely amazing. And I, I will say like, I think that, that one of the things I learned over running the business for 10 years is some people focus on the, the end of the journey, the outcome, but it's actually about the journey itself. It's cheesy as, as that is to say. I loved every single minute of running the company. I loved failing sometimes. We failed a lot, you know, um, getting things wrong, um, the hard parts. That's the fun part. And I hope people who are in the thick of it right now, maybe daydreaming about that exit or whatever, take a minute to enjoy the present and, and the process they're going through because it is, even at its hardest, its own kind of fun. Certainly. Was that courting process with, uh, you said that you were kind of caught off guard a little bit, but there must have been some sort of seed planted earlier or relationship, or, or did they just kind of reach out to you and be like, hey, I saw ChatGPT in the news, so we're just going to buy the, the biggest player in the space? <laughs> uh, not quite that. Now, the world we operated in, which is in legal technology, is a pretty small world. And so we, we knew um, the big players, the small players, the medium players, um, close with all of them. Uh, what had happened you know, in, in this particular case is we were out there raising a, a Series D round of financing. Uh, we had just released a new product based on GPT-4. It was doing phenomenally well, you know, selling left and right. And we thought this is the right time to start um, raising capital and growing out the team. And we were right about, like literally a day away from signing a term sheet when we get the phone call. They said, listen, we know you're raising capital. We know the valuation you're raising at. Give us the weekend to put together an offer. You know, don't sign anything yet. Give us a weekend to put together an offer. I think you'll be happy with it. And so we're we, we were aware of them, but we weren't like in a many months long conversation about potentially working with them. Um, it, it, it was a little bit surprising, but in retrospect, it wasn't that surprising. We, you know, again, we were doing really well with the product we had just launched. I think it is not hype. I think AI, the AI situation is real um, and it makes a real impact for professionals, including for lawyers. And they saw an opportunity to apply what we were doing at a much bigger scale and, and to do it much better with back by their content. And so it made all the sense in the world, you know, but I, I can't take any credit for it. It's all them. Um, I, I did not, you know, see it until they kind of started the conversation. That's awesome. And you as the CEO, you have the 
responsibility to bring all offers to the board and, and consider all offers. Did you know immediately that this this is a, a no brainer? We have to move in this direction, or was that a conversation no. that you had with the board and kind of? It's definitely a conversation. I, I can't get into every single blow by blow and and all that, but I will say that you know it had the offer come say a year before and when, before we were working with GPT four before the company was really taking off. I think it would have been a slam dunk, but things are going so incredibly well for us. It had to be a conversation. You know, could we build up a much larger, larger business privately? Can we take them on on our own? Take off the take on the whole industry on our own? Um, those are this very serious conversation we were having as a board, and it was not you know contentious in a sense. Like you know, it was a very good operating board, a lot of respect with with each other, and open and honest conversation, but. Uh, on the other hand, it wasn't like a slam dunk either at all. And we really, really, really thought about it. Because of the opportunity of the, of the alternate path, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. One more question on this topic. I had Sean Burns on the podcast last year, and he's gone through a few acquisitions. And you know, he brought up the statistic that most acquisitions fail. And part of that reason is because most buyers, most acquiring companies, don't have experience acquiring companies. Thomson Reuters is an exception. They acquire lots of companies. How has that, like, do they have kind of a, a machine that that works in integrating technologies and integrating people, culture, processes, like how does that change the likelihood of it working as an, um, from the other side, from your side of the table, because they have that muscle well-developed? I think that there's definitely an element of that, right? Where they, they know what they are doing and they know how to make this work and they know common pitfalls and how to avoid them. I think to their credit, um, and they learn lessons. You know, they're very actually. One thing that's wonderful about the leadership of Thompson Reuters is, at least internally, they're very open to admitting, okay, we did this thing once, it didn't work out that well. That's why we're doing it this way. Um, very transparent, um, and and obviously very intelligent to be learning lessons from from you know previous missteps or even not missteps, just things that that could have gone better. And so I think that's that's definitely a piece of it. But I think another piece is is that each acquisition is going to be unique. Um, the personality is going to be unique. The product is unique and it's, it's potential role. And you may not even have all the information at the minute you've signed the final documents. Sometimes you have to discover a lot of that information as the teams work together and so on. So another piece of this is having highly intelligent people who are ready to be flexible and intelligent about, you know, and question the assumptions that are going into the, the acquisition. And, and, and again, you know, we can't offer all the plans and, and everything's going on internally yet, but. I will say extreme confidence in the people running the show here. Um, you know, the the chief executive officer, the chief product officer, the chief people officer, the head of engineering, um, all very involved in this acquisition and very thoughtful about how to do everything. And I think it's really good to be part of that. Wonderful. Let's go back to those early stages that you talked about. You oh, yeah. started Case Text, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, it was almost like a social network for lawyers. Um, or, and then you pivoted obviously building this co-counsel product that has been really successful and um, an AI-driven assistant for lawyers. Talk to me about those early stages. How did you know that the original version of the product wasn't going to be successful? What were you looking at from kind of measuring product market fit to the namesake of the podcast? And then once you pivoted, were there initial signs where you're like, yes, we're onto something here uh, and double down on that? Well, the actual story is even messier than all that. And we, we pivoted a number of times. In the early, early days, we started uh, building out a product that would help lawyers do research. And my theory was there are certain things that other products do really well, including one owned by our, our acquirer called Westlaw, another called LexisNexis, or the really big ones. You know, they have all this content, 
Uh, and they have experts, you know, who are adding information to that content that makes it even more valuable. Uh, and they also had, you know, search algorithms that are pretty good. And I thought, okay, well, I won't be able to beat them on the content side of things. Um, especially you can't hire thousands of people to write articles and opinions and annotations and so on. Uh, but I can, I think, make better technology. That was my bet. It's like, well, if we have better technology, but worse content, can there be a product there? And, you know, one of the ideas we had in the very early days is what if we crowdsourced the content and tried to engage lawyers in not a dissimilar way that people are being engaged on, say, Stack Overflow for engineers, GitHub also for engineers, Wikipedia, Quora for general kind of question answering. There are all these examples out there where normal um, people, sometimes professionals, would spend their time explaining things, breaking things down, et cetera, partially just because they're altruistic and partially because it helps them uh, you know, be recognized in the field and and build their skills. And we thought maybe we could do something similar in law. We tried that for for a number of years in a number of different forms. And the short answer is that it just didn't work. And actually to this day, did we execute on it poorly? Maybe. Did we have, so maybe it's the right idea, wrong execution. Maybe it was the wrong idea, right? Because lawyers are billing by the hour and can have a bunch of free time to sit around answering questions and writing annotations and stuff like that. That could also be the issue. Right. So it's impossible to really know why something isn't working sometimes, but it's very easy to tell that it's not working. You can just track certain basic metrics. You say like what success would look like and you get nowhere near it. You go, okay, we got a problem. We're, you know, we got to change. And right at the same time as things weren't working out, I'm trying to get lawyers to annotate. My co-founder to his credit, Pablo said, you know, I've been working with a lot of different methods to kind of automate some of the work that would otherwise have to be done by these expert annotators and writers. And we started playing around with what was then like AI, quote unquote, quote unquote, because it's nothing like today's AI. Today's AI is like just brilliant. You know, in 20, like 14 and 15 and 16, it was still kind of like almost like rules-based or, you know, barely understood language, but could kind of get like some bits of language. It was enough for us to start making real progress towards that vision of better technology for lawyers and kind of grew from there. And as the the we were almost lucky in a sense that the overall state of technology, that the boundaries of what was possible kept on getting better and better and better. We kept on racing all the way to the boundary of what was possible. When the BERT paper came out and was a 2018, we were one of the first implementers of a similar concept in legal, right? And we kept on pushing the boundaries out of what was doable given this current state of affairs in machine learning, artificial intelligence, made a long-term bet that the, the artificial intelligence would make an enormous impact on legal and ended up being right. And in some ways, you know, got kind of lucky with the timing in that it accelerated at a, at a pace that frankly was even faster than we thought it might. You know, that, that leap from GPT-3, which was in retrospect, kind of like a toy to 3.5 to 4 um, was pretty incredible. And so, you know, part of it was luck. Part of it was, I think, making smart bets, right? Knowing that uh, seeing the kind of the direction things were going, where all the research was happening and, and, and feeling like, okay, if we were just on the cutting edge of this now and you can kind of build a business today, we can have something really, really valuable when when things happen. But, but just cut to the very end. We felt, we saw GPT-4 early. We got lucky. We had a relationship with OpenAI. It's hard to imagine when the early days of OpenAI, they weren't like they are today, like one of the most like famously known, impactful companies in the world. In the earlier days with GPT-2, GPT-3, they were kind of a research institution almost. And they had a few... Uh, successful use cases of like GPT-3 in, in production environments, like for marketing copy, but not for something professional like law. 
And we had a, a great relationship with them when they would kind of come to us every so often with the newer versions of their older models at the time, you know, then, then new, newer, you know, newer versions of their models. And they'd be like, hey, is this usable for legal yet? And we kind of look at it, we run it through some tasks, we're like, no, 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 no. And then finally, like mid 2022, they came to us with a model, like, hey, this is like fresh out of the oven, basically. Um, can you give us a shot? You know, and they they called it DV3. We're like, okay, so it's just DaVinci 3 or whatever, but it was very different. And we're like, oh, wow, this is just really, really impressive. And at that moment, like literally, like within a week of, of, first interacting with it, we again pivoted the whole company. And we said, everybody stop what you're working on, stop what you're selling. We are going to be building and selling this. Um, and and we saw an opportunity to create a much more impactful product for our customers. So way beyond just searching for information. But you know, in short, creating an AI assistant that you can just kind of ask it, like, hey, can you do this thing for me? And it just goes and does it. Hey, read these a thousand documents and tell me what's in them. Read these hundred contracts and redline them and mark them up so they can accurately reflect the company's like kind of wishes here, you know, do research for me and read a thousand cases before you come back with your answer. You get ask her to do all those things. It understands what you mean. And it goes, do, goes and does it at a level that, that, you know, matches a, a junior kind of person in a law firm. And that's massively valuable and, and works by the way, at superhuman speeds. The things that would take me when I was a lawyer, I thought it was pretty good. Taking me like 10 hours, doing like 10 minutes. So we just changed again for final time, pivoted the whole company around something that we thought was we were already focusing on AI and legal, but this this is different and bigger. Yeah, and uh, and focus the whole company around it. Yeah, I think that parallels a lot of people's experience. The first time they saw ChatGPT, which is three point five, you know, people who've been in, tuned into the space for a while, uh, you know, I've been bullish on AI for a while. But even the first time I chatted with ChatGPT, I was like, this is different. This this there's there's that magical component where it's it's leaps and bounds beyond what had come before it. So kudos to you for for recognizing that immediately and taking the whole company and and refocusing on that. From a sales and growth perspective, I'd love for you to share any any lessons learned around growth. I don't know if you if you sell primarily to, to kind of small sole practitioners, small practices. Do you sell to? I, I think you have some of the biggest law firms in the country as clients. Is it across the spectrum? And specifically in the legal profession, you mentioned about taking something that takes. You know, junior associates or, or paralegals, hundreds of hours to do, and AI yeah, can do it pretty quickly. The legal profession today, the, the business model is to bill on time. They're not necessarily incentivized to save time because that's not their cost. They pass that to the customer, to the client. How do you pitch that? How do you market that? How do you position yourself to to be a value add to those to those clients? And they're they're rethinking their business model as they're thinking about your business model, right? Yeah, these are these are great questions. And so the the, the kind of longer history starting, you know, over the 10 year history of the business is we started with, with a hypothesis that we'd sell these like AI legal stuff to big law firms. And part of that is like me and both my co-founders and many of the people at my company all had experience working at big law firms. And so we went immediately to the people who we knew and the firms that we knew of, et cetera. And that actually did pretty well. We, we had um, pretty good success at the big law firms, but Sometimes the market tells you, like kind of screams at you that you're doing the wrong thing. Not even the wrong thing, but there's like even other places to focus. Like, for example, we we on a whim put up a kind of a Stripe, you know, subscription page, even though we're selling enterprise. We're like, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll get some individual subscribers. And we started realizing that like out of nowhere, 200 subscribers, just like a few weeks in. We're like, what the hell happened? <laughs> and um, we started interviewing those customers, like, hey, what do you get out of this? And it turns out that that with AI, we were solving problems that kind of spoke not just to the very largest firms, 
but also to very small firms. And it's very, you know, very small firms oftentimes aren't dealing with the same kind of economics that you mentioned around billing by the hour. Oftentimes, for example, if you're on the plaintiff side, if you're suing somebody, um, the deal you make with your client is like, if I win, I get a third of the winnings. And then if I don't win, you get nothing at all. So they're actually hyper-incentivized to be super efficient and effective and intelligent with their time, right? And so we started finding out about these, I call them niches, but they're actually large, large, large parts of legal practice, like hundreds of thousands of lawyers who had different, but kind of extreme needs for our, our technology. And for a long time, actually, though we did sell to some of the largest law firms in the world, we were making more money from selling to one, two, five, 10 person law firms, small companies, in-house councils within larger businesses who don't have you know, maybe negative incentives to adopt innovative technology and move faster. So that was like a, a lesson learned there is like really listen to the market. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you have like ego involved, but I want to sell the biggest law firms, right? The most prestigious law firms. But then the market will say like, actually, I think you beat, ought to be over here. Uh, and there's a real demand over here. You're actually solving a real problem over here. And, and our lesson there was you got to listen. And on top of that, put yourself in a position where you can gather the kind of data. You know, we moved really fast as a company. Every time we made pivots, big and small, every time we launched a new product, um, we, were, we were always operating with urgency. And having a product out there in market, putting up the Stripe page, all, the, all that kind of stuff put us in a position to learn lessons fast and make intelligent decisions based on that. So yes, this question about like the billable hour, I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, for, for all entrepreneurs, you have to be able to answer the question, why is somebody going to buy this technology? Is it going to make them more money? That's the best answer. We never did that, I think. Is it going to save them money? Is it going to reduce risk, right? Um, and usually if it's not one of those top three things, and probably in that order, you're going to have a tough time. You have to be able to explain in business terms why another business is going to buy your product. You know, for, for a bit of time, we were kind of barking up the wrong tree. We were talking about efficiency with the large law firms, and they you know, sometimes directly respond with the point you made, hey, we build by the hour. I don't want to be more efficient. And sometimes they'd say like, well, you know, we'll take it into consideration, but I think they're probably thinking it, you know? And our lesson was to, to learn about the other values you can bring to that firm by using technology. Maybe it's not about efficiency, but it's about the quality of work, retaining top talent because they're using the best technology as opposed to leaving to other firms that are, you know, upgrading their technology stack. Showing to their clients that they are on the cutting edge and helping them retain and gain new clients compared to law firms that seem to be stuck in the past. And when it came time for generative AI, those kinds of stories got amplified like 10x. I think a lot of law firms saw ChatGPT and they understood that the old way of doing business was not going to work anymore. That we're in a moment of change and that if they do not update first, they may not be around just to, to kind of update later. And I think at these moments, like we are living in right now, and massive changes of technology. They make uh, old enterprises, slow-moving enterprises, a move potentially at a very different pace and with a different kind of um, uh, vigor and urgency and to accept things that they may not have accepted for a long time. So in the case of law firms, they're asking new questions about should we be billing by the hour at all? Is that model sustainable? Do we need to be changing the way that we hire, the way that we train? That's the kind of moment we're in, and it's a really good moment to be you know, an innovative startup offering a solution that you know, speaks to the future and not kind of backwards looking. And maybe one last point about all of this. There's this great essay written by, I think, Mark Andreessen. I think it's Mark Andreessen. Uh, I think it's on his blog or his archives. It's like from like 2007, 2008. It's like an old blog post. And it's titled something like, The Only Thing That Matters. 
And in it, he describes what it feels like to have product market fit. The, the thesis of the article is the only thing that matters is that the market is receptive and interested in, in you know, buying what you're selling, if I remember correctly. And that kind of trumps everything. And in that, in that article or in that essay, he writes like, you'll know when you have product market fit, when you, when you feel it, like you'll, you'll feel it. It's like, and you list all these things, like your servers are running in the capacity, you're selling fast and your salespeople can, can handle. You have to hire more support people to handle all the kind of inbound customers that you're dealing with. You'll eat for a year free at Bucks, which is at the, you know, out here in Silicon Valley, it's the, the local kind of like, it's almost like a, oh, like a divey. Uh, is that where all the VCs take you? Where all the VCs take you. Exactly. And it is still a hundred thousand percent true today. We had inklings of product market fit before we launched CoCounsel. We had, you know, seen moments of fast growth. We've seen that interest from VCs, et cetera. But you, know, you only know this in retrospect. We had nothing like what it felt like to launch CoCounsel and get that kind of interest. We were on TV. We were getting interviewed by the New York Times and the Economist. We had VCs chasing us um, and and offering term sheets before we even met. We had, uh, you know, most importantly thousands and thousands of new customers who were coming in, paying us a price point that was literally 5X higher than we'd ever charged for anything before um, and doing so happily and raving about us to their friends. You you will know it when you have product market fit and at least extreme product market fit. And sometimes you kind of tell yourself you have product market fit. You tell yourself, you tell it to your investors because you almost want to believe it. I uh, had never seen anything like it. Obviously, the sales team and the marketing team did a ton of work to get us there in a business to be in a place where that was happening. But and I so I won't take away anything at all from anything they did. But having a product that really kind of matches that moment in the market is so insanely important. You can't sell or market your way out of that. We had really amazing sales and marketing people in the past. And frankly, like one of the hardest parts of running a company is, is when you think you have product market fit, you staff up with dozens of, of salespeople and they're not selling effectively. And you have to eventually let them go. And it's not necessarily their fault. They could be really, really fantastic at what they do. But if nobody's buying them, it does not make any sense to pay salespeople to sell. And you have to go back to the drawing board and rework on product. Um, so you will know, like, like you know, Andreessen was totally right in that essay. You will know when you have product market fit. Um, and in, and if you, until you have it, I think you just keep on working. You keep on talking to customers. You keep on innovating. And then, and then when you re- reach that magic moment, you'll, you'll know it. I've spent 60 plus episodes on this podcast so far exploring alternate definitions because I never really liked <laughs> his definition. So <laughs> I, I accept what you're saying with, with, uh, begrudgingly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, I know, I know it's, it's honestly, I didn't like it either because I was like, this none is, I mean, we were building a good business, made millions of dollars around you, you know, well over uh, like 15 or something like that before you had co-counsel and. You know, we were doing well, but it wasn't like the thing in the article. So I was like, well, obviously, you know, Andreessen's like being hyperbolic here. But I will say, when you hit it, <laughs> it's exactly what it feels like, like almost to the letter in that essay. So I hear you now. Like that, like the famous uh, Supreme Court decision. You know it when you when you see it. Or <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. This is the end of one, right? Take it, you know, a grain of salt. But um, but that was that was our experience. Yeah, you know, just to reiterate, I think you were you were saying the same thing that all that work beforehand led you to the point to be in that position of getting lucky, so to speak, um, and ride the wave that that just kind of took over the zeitgeist um, with ChatGPT yeah. and, and generative AI. Going back to what you were saying about the business models and, and talking to customers, totally agree that the best place to be is increasing revenue of customers. If you're not increasing revenue, you're either reducing cost or reducing risk. 
There's not, there's not much else there, you know, maybe in, in a ZERP environment, if you're adding, you know, employee joy or, or something, it's not a measurable, like a retention factor, then it's going to be very hard to sell. I wonder though, if, if clients are starting to ask their uh, attorneys, almost like an Intel inside, so to speak of like, are you using, how are you using AI and using that in their, in their decision-making criteria of who to work with, right? Yeah. I think at the, the larger end. Of the spectrum, we actually, frankly, are seeing two different things. You're seeing many um, large law firms being asked by their clients, you know, the big clients. You're talking about like huge banks and like automotive companies, like people who really have a lot of like large legal needs, spend millions of dollars for legal services, and they're starting to ask, like, if you're not using AI, you're gonna, you know, we're gonna spend millions extra unless we go with the, you know, maybe we should instead go with a firm that is using AI and being way more effective and efficient. On the other hand, I will say there's still some big companies there that are saying they're saying things like, "Don't you dare use AI. We are too scared of it." Right. So we're at a moment where there's a lot of like fear, uncertainty, and doubt, um, and it's driving firms a little crazy because some of the, half their clients are saying we want you to use more AI right now, and the other half are saying, "You know, don't you dare." And and you know the firms have to figure out solutions to deploy artificial intelligence for some clients and others, for example, to try to meet the demands of some but not others. So we're at a weird moment. I think it's like with like the cloud, where forward-looking and technology-driven clients mostly were, were fully understood that uh, the cloud was more secure, was better, more scalable. And so they're pushing law firms and other service providers to be in the cloud, where other ones would say, hey, we need you to keep it all on-prem because their stuff is too secret and important to put in some fancy cloud thing, right? And so I think there's going to that learning curve moment again. I, I can't conceive a world where the next five years, you know, just like you can't conceive a world today where people are using iPhones or, or smartphones, I should say, and email to practice law and to like live out your life, generally speaking, I think AI is going to play that role as well. It's like that, that transformative technology. It's going to be impossible to not use it. It's so powerful. And people who don't use it in like five years, three years, even, I think you're, you're going to look at them and like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> you can have this like, you know, PhD in your pocket that can help you answer basically any question about anything if you're using it the right way or using the right technology uh, and do your work 5X faster and you're choosing not to. Like, that's crazy. So I think that that, that we're going to go through it's, it, it takes time. Um, you know, but I think we get there. Like the lawyer in the nineties who, you know, wouldn't type or, you know, in 2005, who wouldn't send the email, yeah. right? There's, there's some holdouts, but you, you gotta yeah. get on board. Just go back to a point you made earlier. And I want to emphasize this for, especially for the people who are the early, early stages of their startup. When I started case text, everybody was saying it's a 10 year journey minimum. And I did not believe them. And there are there some examples like Instagram, like was founded, um, got millions of users, got a billion dollar acquisition. They were done. I was like, oh, hell. That could be the case too. That's obviously the extreme exception to the rule. And what we found, at least in our market, is that building over the course of 10 years gave us so many advantages when the moment was right to really, really go big. We had done a good job um, with earlier technology, so we had good brand recognition and awareness. We had great clients who we could beta with when we had earlier versions of our product. We knew the folks at OpenAI because we were traveling in the same circles and we were building um, you know, relevant uh, LLM-based technologies uh, before GPT 3.5 and 4 came out. Um, and so I think they, you know, would check in on us as, as kind of a barometer for how things are going in law. Um, there are so many ways that uh, we were ready to hit the ground running in ways that other companies were not uh, because, because we've been around for those 10 years. 
And so sometimes the path is even clear. I did not know in 2013 that in 2022, we'd see GPT-4. In no idea. And we were just trying to build a good product for, for our clients and to do better and better and better over time uh, and make the right connections and, and behave honorably and, and everything else. And all of that paid off during the final year of the business when, when things were really taking off. And I think there's a lesson there. I think it's about stick and not giving up if you really believe what you're building. And knowing that you're making investments now, they aren't even obvious what the ROI will be. Going to that conference, talking to that customer, creating a product today that doesn't exactly you know, fulfill your hopes and dreams for the kind of thing you'd be building, um, all of that stuff. You know, It's no guarantee it works out like this, but you're, you're likely putting in place uh, elements that will be very, very successful for you later. And by the way, if you do things that destroy your brand and you know short-term gain and you know undermine you know your perception of the market, you're doing the opposite, right? So play the long game here. Um, be right, do right by your customers and treat them really, really well and like absurdly well. Like you would go above and beyond customer success. And if they're like demanding a refund, don't hesitate. You know, but try to win them back later. All that kind of stuff. And we found anyways that made an enormous, enormous difference. Um, when when we went through this kind of tectonic change in technology, we were, we were ready. We were ready for it. Yeah, great advice there. You mentioned that every lawyer is going to have that co counsel, you know, either lowercase c or, or uppercase c. But you know, like every engineer is going to have a co pilot, and but at the same time, every consumer is going to have their um, whether it's one or many uh, personal assistants. How do you see that playing out in terms of professional services, where the professionals are going to have be empowered to do more? for less, potentially right, lower cost, but consumers are going to be empowered to not necessarily reach out to the professionals immediately where you're going to have consumer tools that get you maybe, you know, 50%, 60%, 70%, you know, kind of like people diagnosing themselves on, on WebMD, but, you know, now 10Xing that with actually an intelligent bot that's giving, uh, you know, mostly decent answers. How do you see that playing out? Yeah, it's like really hard to know, uh, to be honest. And so my, my kind of guess here is that everybody just gets better. The average consumer gets better. They get better, like for example, you know, diagnosing in a, in a midnight conversation with say GPT-5 or whatever, should be even better at medical diagnoses. And by the way, maybe learning themselves, like I gotta go to a hospital, like right now, I gotta see my professional. This thing that seemed like only a little bit concerning, now I'm, now I'm more convinced in a way that is dramatically better than, than what came before, the kind of WebMD Googling around. Um, the next version of that in the medical field maybe consumers being a lot more informed, a lot better informed, faster. And then the doctors treating them, I think will also be in a much better position. I think that you know there are already examples where models like GPT-4 are recommending to doctors diagnoses they wouldn't necessarily like immediately consider um, and directions of research to look into. Not to get too private or personal, but my wife went through a health thing at the early dawn of you know, ChatGPT and GPT-4, I think actually at the time, I still had access to GPT-4, but had not been announced or released yet. And we asked about her situation and it was spot on. I mean, it got to a place that doctors you know, took many, many years to get to. And we were blown away. I think there've been thousands of examples like that right now, right? So the consumers will be better informed, but I think it also put the doctors in a better position as well. And I think that, that professionals still have a really, really important place there's a lot of ways to think about this, but one factor to consider here is large language models are currently trained on a bunch of written text, right? Things that you can learn from books and websites and so on. But there is a lot that you cannot learn from books and websites and so on. Um, how to read a face during a trial. Is this person lying or not? 
you know, you can write all you want about the large language model is not going to be able to do that. People who see the same disease over and over and over again can, can pick up early tells and honestly, sometimes get a hunch um, and kind of a tinge, like, oh, I think something's going wrong here. My spidey sense is tingling uh, without even being able to uh, verbalize what's going on. But I, I think this person may have this problem. We need to look deeper into it. That kind of um, intuition gained by expertise of living in the real world has an insane amount of value. So you combine that with ultra-powerful AIs where you know to ask the right questions to elicit the right answers from your AI. Um, professionals are going to be, I think, as consumers are getting better and smarter, professionals can get better and smarter and faster at their jobs as well. And, and we'll have an even more compelling case for why consumers should use them. And one of the people I work with at the law firm had this analogy. He said, my son just had a, a hand surgery and lasted two hours and paid $50,000 for it. So, so the doctor had you know a quote-unquote billable hour rate of $25,000. So the immense amount of value delivered over the course of those two hours. The surgeon, surgeon did an incredible, you know, gave this kid um, the opportunity to use his hands again. Like that was worth a lot of money over a very short period of time. And, and this person that I was talking to was kind of hypothesizing, maybe in legal too, yeah, well, do you merge an acquisition that usually takes hundreds, if not thousands of hours of many people's time to get through all the different parts of it? What if you were able to do it in just you know, a few dozen hours? You'd still pay the same amount of money, something millions of dollars to, to help advise you for that merger and acquisition because the value is still there, right? So as professionals get more and more fast and valuable, their hourly rate you know, and the amount they can take on over the course of a year may go up substantially. And I think it just benefits everybody, basically, because they're still delivering that same kind of value. You know, the, average, the, the, the top end lawyer gets paid like $1,000 plus, maybe $1,500 an hour. It's not inconceivable that in five years, the top, top lawyer is getting paid the equivalent of $10,000 an hour, you know, or more, given the amount of value they're able to deliver over a short period of time. Does that mean that, they, that there's 90% less lawyers or that there's 10x more lawsuits to fill the void? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, maybe a bit of both, to be honest, and, and maybe not even lawsuits. You know, I think think about like there's, you know, law is two sides to it. Basically, there's the part where you're, you're making deals, um, making contracts, uh, and there's also the part where contracts fall apart or things that just don't work out in real life, and you're suing people. You know, so it's transactional law litigation. On the transactional side, even within pretty sophisticated companies that are like middle middle size or small, how many contracts just never get reviewed by a lawyer? Literally somebody that gets it and they're like, yeah, next, 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 sign. You know, there's so much where lawyers can be helping, where they're not helping. Uh, I have a friend who runs a restaurant business and he sent me this, this contract to review. I'm not even a practicing lawyer anymore. I'm like, not supposed to be doing this, but he had a contract and it was for um, cleaning the uniforms for the business, for the chain kind of restaurant. And it was insane. It was one of the craziest contracts I've ever seen in my entire life. You know, uh, it would have been a terrible idea to sign it, but he was about to just hit the doggy sign, you know, happens all the time. There's so many areas where lawyers who, you know, why, why don't you reach out to a lawyer in these situations? Well, it's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of time. Don't have the time or money to deal with it. I mean, I'm going to be able to find a great lawyer anyways. It's a whole hassle. So I'll just like, just do it myself. I think there's so many opportunities for lawyers who are working faster, better, cheaper to, to service way more people in, in the kind of area of law that's not being practiced. On the lawsuit side, there's a statistic out there that um, 80 to 90% of Americans, low-income Americans, who want and need legal services cannot afford, right? So at least at the, the bottom end of the market, there's an enormous market for legal services just not being served at all. And on the top end of the market, how many times does say a company get sued and they say, we know this is frivolous. We know this is wrong. We're going to settle anyways because it costs too much to hire a lawyer. 
And and honestly, the person doing the suing may know that too. They know it's frivolous and wrong, right? I'm not saying all lawsuits are frivolous and wrong, but there there are times. And where the company the company goes like, we're just going to give this person fifty thousand or a thousand dollars, whatever, just give it off her back because the lawyer will cost so much more than that. And I think that that balance in the shift where say, oh well, we can you know try the case for fifty thousand um, dollars, or we can maybe settle if we think that's better or faster. Um, and and the people suing will know that the economics have changed too, and they may not bring as many cases that don't don't kind of merit it. So I think that you can have these different shifting dynamics that would be super interesting. I think it's going to be, you know, I doubt it's going to be get worse than it currently is today. I think, you know, there are a lot of people who just need to be represented who aren't. And I think that's going to be the main impact of all this. That's, that's what we hope anyways. That's the mission of our business is to help people who can't get access to justice, get access, continue to get access to justice by, by empowering lawyers to work faster, better, smarter. That's what we think is going to likely happen out of all of this. Cool. One more question kind of related topic, and then we'll get to our exciting lightning round. We all know that famous story came out of New York. An attorney submitted a brief, had used ChatGPT, and it had completely hallucinated uh, case law and, and citations, et cetera. Um, I think they got censured for it. Nobody wants to be that lawyer. Is hallucination an inherent feature of large language models? I know that uh, RAGs are you know, one attempt to try to solve or at least reduce that. Is it working? How do you guys account for that? Do you see a future where LLMs don't hallucinate at all, or is it is it embedded in the nature? I mean, people hallucinate, people lie, people make stuff up too, right? Or in, in uh, Reid Hoffman's uh, terms, confabulate. So maybe maybe it's a feature, not a bug. But do you see it going away? So I think a really important piece of our success was being able to drive the incidence of hallucinations, inaccuracies, and so on, basically to zero. And I should clarify: when you're using a tool like CoCounsel, it's a professional tool, not just kind of chatting with it. It is doing a number of things behind the scenes to increase the likelihood of, of an accurate answer and to decrease or essentially at this point eliminate the possibility just to kind of just make something up. But you can't guarantee that it'll be fully right because you know sometimes it's like, for example, reading a really difficult to understand contract that say 90 out of 100 lawyers reading it would also mistake like, you know, this part doesn't connect to that other part and this part changes the definition of this or whatever. And you would be able to follow the thread, et cetera. And we're still at a point of technology where it's not smarter than a really smart person, I would say. It's faster, but it's not smarter than a really smart person. But it's if, if prompted well and if you use the right techniques, it can get pretty close. But big picture, like, no, I don't think hallucination is something that, that professionals have to put up with in professional tools. We have done a ton of work and we're continuing to do a ton of work with Thomson Reuters to add in, you mentioned one thing earlier, retrieval augmented generation, short after, you know, short as RAG that asks the model to ground everything it's saying in real actual things versus kind of like answer. You know, that the lawyer said like, hey, can you give me some cases and just made up cases. But if instead you're like, hey, read all these cases, which of these are relevant to the request? It's a very different, you know, kind of action. And it does a dramatically better job there. But there are a lot of, you know, tricks behind the scenes you can do. Not all of them I can disclose kind of on air that go far above and beyond traditional, you know, retrieval augmented generation techniques to really drive the incidence of these kinds of problems down to zero. And we're really proud of that work uh, and feel really good about, you know, when it says this happened here or this didn't happen here and this case says this or it doesn't say that, that you're getting what you kind of asked for. Um, so it's, uh, it's not easy work. I, I think for people who are working on this kind of stuff, uh, I think that, that what really place to start that most people aren't focusing on is um, kind of building a test-driven development framework around your prompting. A prompt is like a set of instructions in English where you want it to do something that you probably couldn't do in code before. Like read all this stuff and tell me which one is 
super relevant and why and write a summary about it. And one technique here is, is you write what you want the outcome to be. The input is this question, output is this answer. The input is this question, output is this answer. Measure. Uh, measure how you're doing with the prompt you currently have. And we've seen it start with a prompt that's like in 60% accuracy, which is to say like a D minus, do not release this to the world, all the way to 99.98% accuracy over thousands of examples that mirror what our customers would likely put into the tool because you hired experts who know what our customers would likely put into the tool. And once you put in, again, thousands of examples and measure the accuracy of your prompt as you're, as you're tuning it, that, that's a very, very, very big first step. There's other steps as well you need to do, but you can go a lot. Like, it is, it's hard work. It takes months sometimes to create all the tests and to write the prompt and to, and to iterate, 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 and maybe split one prompt into three smaller prompts doing simpler things and maybe you know all kinds of different um, approaches here. But I think a lot of people give up really early. They're like, yeah, I tried, tried it for a day, didn't work. No, try for months and try your whole team working on it and try writing thousands of tests and try iterating and iterating and iterating. It is to do the juice is worth a squeeze. Yep. And that's the thing one area that people make the biggest mistake is giving up too early. Yeah. My my gut tells me that the technology is gonna get there faster than people's trust and comfort level with <laughs> with using the technology, uh, if it hasn't already. Jake, I'm really enjoying this. We close out with a lightning round. Uh, you have three options. Theme one is favorite things. Theme two is heroes and villains. And theme three is how the turntables turn. Which one would you like to go with? Uh, wow. Okay. I'll go with favorite things. All right. Can you give me a favorite book, one fiction and one nonfiction? Uh, fiction. I'm still a fan. I read almost two decades ago, the, the um, Ice and Fire, whatever, the, the Game of Thrones books. Uh, nonfiction. I read a great, I remember who it was by. I read a great biography of Winston Churchill a few years ago. And that dude is hilarious and interesting, uh, had all kinds of gems in it. Like he didn't want to work out. In fact, he believed that, you know, why stand when you can sit, why sit when you can lay down? So most of his time laying down. Uh, and the guy lived to a pretty old age, drinking lots of whiskey and smoking cigars. He's an absolute character. Um, I'll maybe you know, email about the name of the actual biography after the show, after I remember it. Cool. What are your favorite podcasts? Uh, besides this one, um, there are a few that, that used to be really good. They used to listen to all the time. The well-produced, intelligent podcasts that are no longer on the air. But I think Reply All in its prime was amazing. Uh, Radio Lab, uh, just kind of like mind-blowing every time. Uh, this American Life, like kind of the standards were just so fun. All these spaghettis. And I mean, there, I, I still sometimes think about that Reply All episode where they literally go to India to talk to the fraud center. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've heard that one already. Oh man, it's so amazing. Yeah, that was a good one. Can you recommend a movie or TV show that you're liking right now? Let's see. It's been a while since I've seen a movie or TV show that really blew me away. Um, But I think a TV show that's really underrated is Detroiters. So there's this kind of absurdist comedian named Tim Robinson has this sketch kind of show on Netflix called I Think You Should Leave. That's hilarious. <laughs> but he uh, made the show earlier called Detroiters that I think is just in this really interesting mix of wholesome and weird. And it's it's my kind of humor anyways. Uh, and not many people have heard of it or seen it, but I think it's like, it's kind of doing in a sense what Ted Lasso is doing, but way more wholesome and way more weird. Uh, and it's just really endearing. I, I could watch a show anytime. Cool. I have not heard of it, so I'll check that out. Um, last one here. What's one core value or principle you live by or try to live by? Mm, that's really interesting. Um, in business, we had our own values for the business, uh, and some of them kind of bled over to like my life. 
we have real focus on speed and urgency and the business is about moving really fast. I mean, I, I believe that life is really, really short, like, like shockingly short. I remind myself of that all the time. And so you try to make every moment uh, enjoyable and interesting and, and take away something from it. And a lot of people seem to kind of drudge through things and they'll maybe think they'll live later when they retire or when they, this happens and that happens, they'll finally be happy. But dude, it's, it goes fast. You know, I have four young kids now. Uh, and I'm trying to enjoy, I mean, I work really hard, but I try to enjoy every single moment I possibly can with my kids. Um, and I think that kind of like having the urgency of now is really, really important because it's really easy to be kind of convince yourself you shouldn't, you know, or that you're just kind of waiting for, waiting for something else to happen. I love that. Every minute counts. And I really appreciate you spending your precious time with me, with us, sharing your knowledge and experience. Really enjoyed this. Learned a lot. Jake, if you want to close us out with any final words and how can people reach you and learn more about Case Techs? Totally. Um, well, thanks again for having me. Uh, this has been really fun. It's always fun to talk about this kind of stuff. And, and hopefully some folks out there who are working on this, especially the early days, maybe even struggling, you know, just keep keep at it. If you really believe in what you're doing, it's going, going to work and you have to believe that and just have fun with it along the way. You know, best reached probably on Twitter. I'm at Jacob underscore Heller because I didn't get Jake Heller. <laughs> um, or you can just email me. I'm jake.heller at thompsonreuters.com. Fantastic. Thank you, Jake. Congratulations again. Wishing you tons of success and appreciate your time. Thanks again, man. That's a wrap. Thanks so much for joining me on this learning adventure. Don't forget to bookmark or subscribe to this podcast so you get notified whenever we release new episodes. As always, wishing you rocket ship success on your startup journey. Bye for now. Bye for now.